Section 12 of Library of World's Best Mystery and Detective Stories, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Eve Yarrell. Library of the World's Best Mystery and Detective Stories, Volume 1, by Julian Hawthorne, Editor, Section 12. Wolfert Weber, or Golden Dreams, Part 1, by Washington Irving. Washington Irving, Wolfert Weber, or Golden Dreams. In the year of grace, 1,700 and... blank, for I do not remember the precise date. However, it was somewhere in the early part of the last century. There lived in the ancient city of the Manhattos a worthy burgher, Wolfert Webert by name. He was descended from old Cobus Weber of the Brill in Holland, one of the original settlers famous for introducing the cultivation of cabbages, and who came over to the province during the protectorship of Olofife van Cortland, otherwise called the Dreamer. The field in which Cobus Weber first planted himself and his cabbages has remained ever since in the family, who continued in the same line of husbandry with that praiseworthy perseverance for which our Dutch burghers are noted. The whole family genius during several generations was devoted to the study and development of this one noble vegetable, and to this concentration of intellect may doubtless be ascribed the prodigious renown to which the Weber cabbages attained. The Weber dynasty continued in uninterrupted succession, and never did a line give more unquestionable proofs of legitimacy. The eldest son succeeded to the looks as well as the territory of his sire, and had the portraits of this line of tranquil potentates been taken, they would have presented a row of heads marvelously resembling in shape and magnitude the vegetables over which they reigned. The seat of government continued unchanged in the family mansion, a Dutch-built house with a front, or rather gable end, of yellow brick tapering to a point, with the customary iron weathercock at the top. Everything about the building bore the air of long-settled ease and security. Flights of martins peopled the little coops nailed against its walls, and swallows built their nests under the eaves, and everyone knows that these house-loving birds bring good luck to the dwelling where they take up their abode. In a bright summer morning in early summer, it was delectable to hear their cheerful notes as they sported about in the pure, sweet air, chirping forth, as it were, the greatness and prosperity of the Webbers. Thus quietly and comfortably did this excellent family vegetate under the shade of a mighty buttonwood tree, which by little and little grew so great as entirely to overshadow their palace. The city gradually spread its suburbs round their domain. Houses sprang up to interrupt their prospects. The rural lanes in the vicinity began to grow into the bustle and populousness of streets. In short, with all the habits of rustic life, they began to find themselves the inhabitants of a city. Still, however, they maintained their hereditary character and hereditary possessions, with all the tenacity of petty German princes in the midst of the empire. Wolfert was the last of the line, and succeeded to the patriarchal bench at the door, under the family tree, and swayed the scepter of his fathers, a kind of rural potentate in the midst of the metropolis. To share the cares and sweets of sovereignty, he had taken unto himself a helpmate, 
one of that excellent kind called stirring women. That is to say, she was one of those notable little housewives who are always busy where there is nothing to do. Her activity, however, took one particular direction. Her whole life seemed devoted to intense knitting. Whether at home or abroad, walking or sitting, her needles were continually in motion, and it is even affirmed that by her unwearied industry she very nearly supplied her household with stockings throughout the year. This worthy couple were blessed with one daughter, who was brought up with great tenderness and care. Uncommon pains had been taken with her education, so that she could stitch in every variety of way, make all kinds of pickles and preserves, and mark her own name on a sampler. The influence of her taste was also seen in the family garden, where the ornamental began to mingle with the useful. Whole rows of fiery marigolds and splendid hollyhocks bordered the cabbage beds, and gigantic sunflowers lolled their broad, jolly faces over the fences, seeming to ogle most affectionately the passers-by. Thus reigned and vegetated Wolfert Weber over his paternal acres, peacefully and contentedly. Not but that, like all other sovereigns, he had his occasional cares and vexations. The growth of his native city sometimes caused him annoyance. His little territory gradually became hemmed in by streets and houses, which intercepted air and sunshine. He was now and then subjected to the eruptions of the border population that infest the streets of a metropolis, who would make midnight forays into his dominions and carry off captive whole platoons of his noblest subjects. Vagrant swine would make a descent, too, now and then when the gate was left open, and lay all waste before them, and mischievous urchins would decapitate the illustrious sunflowers, the glory of the garden, as they lolled their heads so fondly over the walls. Still all these were petty grievances, which might now and then ruffle the surface of his mind as a summer breeze would ruffle the surface of a mill-pond, but they could not disturb the deep-seated quiet of his soul. He would but seize a trusty staff that stood behind the door, issue suddenly out, and anoint the back of the aggressor, whether pig or urchin, and then return within doors, marvelously refreshed and tranquilized. The chief cause of anxiety to honest Wolfert, however, was the growing prosperity of the city. The expenses of living doubled and trebled, but he could not double and treble the magnitude of his cabbages, and the number of competitors prevented the increase of price. Thus, therefore, while every one around him grew richer, Wolfert grew poorer, and he could not, for the life of him, perceive how the evil was to be remedied. This growing care, which increased from day to day, had its gradual effect upon our worthy burgher, insomuch that it at length implanted two or three wrinkles in his brow, things unknown before in the family of the Webbers, and it seemed to pinch up the corners of his cocked hat into an expression of anxiety totally opposite to the tranquil, broad-brimmed, low-crowned beavers of his illustrious progenitors. Perhaps even this would not have materially disturbed the serenity of his mind had he only himself and his wife to care for, but there was his daughter gradually growing to maturity, and all the world knows that when daughters begin to ripen, no fruit or flower requires so much looking after. I have no talent at describing female charms, else fain I would depict the progress of this little Dutch beauty, how her blue eyes grew deeper and deeper, and her cherry lips redder and redder, 
how she ripened and ripened and rounded and rounded in the opening breath of sixteen summers until, in her seventeenth spring, she seemed ready to burst out of her bodice like a half-blown rosebud. Ah, well a day, could I but show her as she was then, tricked out on a Sunday morning in the hereditary finery of the old Dutch clothes-press, of which her mother had confided to her the key, the wedding dress of her grandmother modernized for use, with sundry ornaments handed down as heirlooms in the family. Her pale brown hair smoothed with buttermilk in flat waving lines on each side of her fair forehead, the chain of yellow virgin gold that encircled her neck, the little cross that just rested at the entrance of a soft valley of happiness, as if it would sanctify the place. The but pooh it is not for an old man like me to be prosing about female beauty suffice it to say amy had attained her seventeenth year long since had her sampler exhibited hearts and couples desperately transfixed with arrows and true lovers knots worked in deep blue silk and it was evident she began to languish for some more interesting occupation than the rearing of sunflowers or pickling of cucumbers at this critical period of female existence, when the heart within a damsel's bosom, like its emblem, the miniature which hangs without, is apt to be engrossed by a single image, a new visitor began to make his appearance under the roof of Wolford Weber. This was Dirk Waldron, the only son of a poor widow, but who could boast of more fathers than any lad in the province, for his mother had four husbands, and this only child, so that, though born in her last wedlock, he might fairly claim to be the tardy fruit of a long course of cultivation. This son of forefathers united the merits and vigor of all his sires. If he had not a great family before him, he seemed likely to have a great one after him, for you had only to look at the fresh, buxom youth to see that he was formed to be the founder of a mighty race. This youngster gradually became an intimate visitor of the family. He talked little, but he sat long. He filled the father's pipe when it was empty, gathered up the mother's knitting needle or ball of worsted when it fell to the ground, stroked the sleek coat of the tortoise-shell cat, and replenished the teapot for the daughter from the bright copper kettle that sang before the fire. All these quiet little offices might seem of trifling import, but when true love is translated into low Dutch, it is in this way that it eloquently expresses itself. They were not lost upon the Weber family. The winning youngster found marvelous favor in the eyes of the mother. The tortoise-shell cat, albeit the most staid and demure of her kind, gave indubitable signs of approbation of his visits. The tea-kettle seemed to sing out a cheering note of welcome at his approach. And if the sly glances of the daughter might be rightly read, as she sat bridling and dimpling and sewing by her mother's side, she was not a whit behind Dame Weber or Grammelkin, or the tea-kettle in goodwill. Wolfert alone saw nothing of what was going on. Profoundly wrapped up in meditation on the growth of the city and his cabbages, he sat looking in the fire and puffing his pipe in silence. One night, however, as the gentle Amy, according to custom, lighted her lover to the outer door, and he, according to custom, took his parting salute, the smack resounded so vigorously through the long, silent entry as to startle even the dull ear of Wolfert. He was slowly roused to a new source of anxiety. It had never entered into his head that this mere child, who, as it seemed, but the other day had been climbing about his knees and playing with dolls and baby-houses, could all at once be thinking of lovers and matrimony. 
He rubbed his eyes, examined into the fact, and really found that while he'd been dreaming of other matters, she had actually grown to be a woman, and what was worse, had fallen in love. Here arose new cares for Wolfert. He was a kind father, but he was a prudent man. The young man was a lively, stirring lad. But then he had neither money nor land. Wolfert's ideas all ran in one channel, and he saw no alternative in case of a marriage but to portion off the young couple with a corner of his cabbage garden, the whole of which was barely sufficient for the support of his family. Like a prudent father, therefore, he determined to nip this passion in the bud, and forbade the youngster the house, though sorely it did go against his fatherly heart, and many a silent tear did it cause in the bright eye of his daughter. She showed herself, however, a pattern of filial piety and obedience. She never pouted and sulked. She never flew in the face of parental authority. She never flew into a passion, nor fell into hysterics, as many romantic, novel-read young ladies would do. Not she, indeed. She was none such heroical, rebellious trumpery, I'll warrant you. On the contrary, she acquiesced like an obedient daughter, shut the street door in her lover's face, and if ever she did grant him an interview, it was either out of the kitchen window or over the garden fence. Wolfert was deeply cogitating these matters in his mind, and his brow wrinkled with unusual care as he wended his way one Saturday afternoon to a rural inn about two miles from the city. It was a favorite resort of the Dutch part of the community, from being always held by a Dutch line of landlords, and retaining an air and relish of the good old times. It was a Dutch-built house that had probably been a country seat of some opulent burgher in the early time of the settlement. It stood near a point of land called Corlier's Hook, which stretches out into the sound, and against which the tide, at its flux and reflux, sets with extraordinary rapidity. The venerable and somewhat crazy mansion was distinguished from afar by a grove of elms and sycamores that seemed to wave a hospitable invitation while a few weeping willows, with their dank, drooping foliage resembling falling waters, gave an idea of coolness that rendered it an attractive spot during the heats of summer. Here, therefore, as I said, resorted many of the old inhabitants of the Manhattos, where, while some played at shuffleboard and quoits and ninepins, others smoked a deliberate pipe and talked over public affairs. It was on a blustering autumnal afternoon that Wolfert made his visit to the inn, the grove of elms and willows was stripped of its leaves, which whirled in rustling eddies about the fields. The nine-pin alley was deserted, for the premature chilliness of the day had driven the company within doors. As it was Saturday afternoon, the habitual club was in session, composed principally of regular Dutch burghers, though mingled occasionally with persons of various character and country, as is natural in a place of such motley population." Beside the fireplace, in a huge leather-bottomed armchair, sat the dictator of this little world, the venerable Rem, or, as it was pronounced, Ranim Rapalai. He was a man of Walloon race, and illustrious for the antiquity of his line, his great-grandmother having been the first white child born in the province. But he was still more illustrious for his wealth and dignity. He had long filled the noble office of alderman, and was a man to whom the governor himself took off his hat. He had maintained possession of the leather-bottomed chair from time immemorial, and had gradually waxed in bulk as he sat in his seat of government, 
until in the course of years he filled its whole magnitude. His word was decisive with his subjects, for he was so rich a man he was never expected to support any opinion by argument. The landlord waited on him with peculiar officiousness, not that he paid better than his neighbors, but then the coin of a rich man always seems to be so much more acceptable. The landlord had ever a pleasant word and a joke to insinuate in the ear of the august Ram. It was true Ram never laughed, and indeed ever maintained a mastiff-like gravity and even surliness of aspect. Yet he now and then rewarded mine host with a token of approbation, which, though nothing more nor less than a kind of grunt, still delighted the landlord more than a broad laugh from a poorer man. "'This will be a rough night for the money-diggers,' said mine host, as a gust of wind howled round the house and rattled at the windows. "'What, are they at their works again?' said an English half-pay captain with one eye, who was a very frequent attendant at the inn. "'Aye, they are,' said the landlord. "'And well may they be. They've had luck of late. They say a great pot of money has been dug up in the fields just behind Stuyvesant's orchard.' "'Fudge!' said the one-eyed man-of-war, as he added a small portion of water to a bottom of brandy. "'Well, believe it or not, as you please,' said mine host, somewhat netted. "'But everybody knows that the old governor buried a great deal of his money at the time of the Dutch troubles, when the English redcoats seized on the province. They say, too, the old gentleman walks, aye, and in the very same dress that he wears in the picture that hangs up in the family house.' "'Fudge!' said the half-pay officer." "'Fudge, if you please. But didn't Corny Van Zandt see him at midnight stalking about in the meadow with his wooden leg and a drawn sword in his hand that flashed like fire? And what can he be walking for but because people have been troubling the place where he buried his money in old times?' Here the landlord was interrupted by several guttural sounds from Ram Ramply, betokening that he was laboring with the unusual production of an idea. As he was too great a man to be slighted by a prudent publican, mine host respectfully paused until he should deliver himself. The corpulent frame of this mighty burgher now gave all the symptoms of a volcanic mountain on the point of an eruption. First there was a certain heaving of the abdomen, not unlike an earthquake. Then was emitted a cloud of tobacco smoke from that crater his mouth. Then there was a kind of rattle in the throat, as if the idea were working its way up through a region of phlegm. Then there were several disjointed members of a sentence thrown out, ending in a cough. At length his voice forced its way into a slow but absolute tone of a man who feels the weight of his purse, if not of his ideas, every portion of his speech being marked by a testy puff of tobacco smoke. "'Who talks of old Peter Stuyvesant's walking?' puff. "'Have people no respect for persons?' "'Puff, puff. "'Peter Stuyvesant knew better what to do with his money than to bury it.' "'Puff. "'I know the Stuyvesant family.' "'Puff. "'Every one of them.' "'Puff. "'Not a more respectable family in the province.' "'Puff. "'Old standards.' "'Puff. "'Warm householders.' "'Puff. "'None of your upstarts.' "'Puff. "'Puff.' Puff. Don't talk to me of Peter Stuyvesant's walking. Puff. 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 
Here the redoubtable ram contracted his brow, clasped up his mouth till it wrinkled at each corner, and redoubled his smoking with such vehemence that the cloudy volume soon wreathed round his head, as the smoke envelops the awful summit of Mount Etna. A general silence followed the sudden rebuke of this very rich man. The subject, however, was too interesting to be readily abandoned. The conversation soon broke forth again from the lips of Peachy Prow Van Hook, the chronicler of the club, one of those prosing, narrative old men who seem to be troubled with an incontinence of words as they grow old. Peachy could at any time tell as many stories in an evening as his hearers could digest in a month. He now resumed the conversation by affirming that, to his knowledge, money had at different times been digged up in various parts of the island. The lucky persons who had discovered them had always dreamed of them three times beforehand, and, what was worthy of remark, those treasures had never been found but by some descendant of the good old Dutch families, which clearly proved that they'd been buried by Dutchmen in the olden time. "'Fiddlesticks with your Dutchmen!' cried the half-pay officer. "'The Dutch had nothing to do with them. They were all buried by Kidd, the pirate, and his crew.' Here a keynote was touched that roused the whole company. The name of Captain Kidd was like a talisman in those times, and was associated with a thousand marvelous stories. The half-pay officer took the lead, and in his narrations fathered upon Kidd all the plunderings and exploits of Morgan, Blackbeard, and the whole list of bloody buccaneers. The officer was a man of great weight among the peaceable members of the club, by reason of his warlike character and gunpowder tales. All his golden stories of Kidd, however, and the booty he had buried, were obstinately rivaled by the tales of Peachy Prow, who, rather than suffer his Dutch progenitors to be eclipsed by a foreign freebooter, enriched every field and shore in the neighborhood with the hidden wealth of Peter Stuyvesant and his contemporaries. Not a word of this conversation was lost upon Wolfert Weber. He returned pensively home, full of magnificent ideas. The soil of his native island seemed to be turned into gold dust, and every field to teem with treasure. His head almost reeled at the thought of how often he must have heedlessly rambled over places where countless sums lay, scarcely covered by the turf beneath his feet. His mind was in an uproar with this whirl of new ideas. As he came in sight of the venerable mansion of his forefathers, and the little realm where the Webbers had so long and so contentedly flourished, his gorge rose at the narrowness of his destiny. "'Unlucky Wolfert!' exclaimed he. "'Others can go to bed and dream themselves into whole mines of wealth. They have but to seize a spade in the morning and turn up doubloons like potatoes. But thou must dream of hardships and rise to poverty, must dig thy field from year's end to year's end, and yet raise nothing but cabbages.' Wolfert Weber went to bed with a heavy heart, and it was long before the golden visions that disturbed his brain permitted him to sink into repose. The same visions, however, extended into his sleeping thoughts, and assumed a more definite form. He dreamed that he had discovered an immense treasure in the center of his garden. At every stroke of the spade he laid bare a golden ingot. Diamond crosses sparkled out of the dust, Bags of money turned up their bellies, corpulent with pieces of eight, or venerable doubloons, 
and chests wedged close with moiders, ducats, and pistarines yawned before his ravished eyes and vomited forth their glittering contents. Wolfert awoke a poorer man than ever. He had no heart to go about his daily concerns, which appeared so paltry and profitless, but sat all day long in the chimney-corner, picturing to himself ingots and heaps of gold in the fire. The next night his dream was repeated. He was again in his garden digging, and lay open stores of hidden wealth. There was something very singular in this repetition. He passed another day of reverie, and though it was cleaning day and the house, as usual in Dutch households, completely topsy-turvy, yet he sat unmoved amidst the general uproar. The third night he went to bed with a palpitating heart. He put on his red nightcap wrong side outward for good luck. It was deep midnight before his anxious mind could settle itself into sleep. Again the golden dream was repeated, and again he saw his garden teeming with ingots and money-bags. End of section 12 Recording by Eve Yarrell